This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome everybody to the ninth episode of Comics in Black and White. With me this week is Dennis. Once again, two weeks ago we were here with Poison Elves for you. And this week we are here with Lone Wolf and Cub. So last week was a book that uh, that you brought to my attention, Dennis, and this week was one that uh, that I wanted to do. And you just, as soon as I mentioned it, you wanted to jump on board with it. I'm excited to talk Lone Wolf and Cub. We've done Usagi Yojimbo earlier in uh, the life of this podcast, and uh, that was what brought my attention to Lone Wolf and Cub. What brought you to Lone Wolf and Cub? Uh, mine was actually quite by accident. I was at my... Uh, original LCS back where I grew up before I moved and I was in there getting some books and he had gotten this is probably 98 99 2000 that era and I think uh, Dark Horse had just started gotten the rights to print them it had started I think in the early 90s with first comics bringing it over but they only got 45 issues released which wasn't even god a fifth of it and then it hadn't been anybody printed it and dark horse decided to print the reprint it bring it to the u.s and in the original format of the the manga in the size except you don't read it right to left they translated it to reading it left to right uh but he had gotten one of the retailer incentives which was the leather bound version of the first issue you know one per store one of those things and he had it there and i was in the mode of just the the great speculation mode i still from the 90s and i saw and i thought oh this could be worth something someday so i bought it and so i had it sitting there and then i picked up and read it and just fell in love with it and then over the next 12 years i picked up volumes and finally finished it so it's got like it's got like 28 volumes yeah, I, I have the first omnibus, and there's I, there's 11 omnibus of this, and I think that each omnibus is is a little over three of the the, the volume sizes that you have. You sent me a picture of what you have. Um, yeah, it's kind of a trip reading it. Like you said, it's in kind of manga size, so it's like trade like uh, trade paperback novel, not comic trade paperback size. So you're reading it, I like you know you feel like you have a I don't know Stephen King book or something with the size that it is you know the the cheapest printing you could find of a of a novel like that. Um, so it was kind of it kind of odd, kind of interesting trying to or you know for me reading a book that size when you're used to comics being bigger than that. Uh, kind yeah, of pocket and, size. and I've I've tried to decide if that makes the art better or if it could be better larger because. You know, it's in the size that they originally drew, drew it for, and I guess compared to last episode when we were talking about Poison Elves, which was what a black and white indie, self-published, self-taught artist, and everything. You switch over to Lone Wolf and Cub, and it's just—I mean, the art's just beautiful. And uh, I mean, there are some—you know—and it's, it's not your traditional manga where you've got all the characters have the big eyes. So I think uh, the artist, and I'm probably going to, you know, I'm hoping not to do their names too bad, but the artist is Goseki Kojima. You know, he, yep, and he was, you know, a traditionally trained artist. Well, I actually said he was self-taught in uh, painting advertising posters and movie theaters posters during like uh he was born in 1928 so that must have been in the 30s and the 40s world war ii i mean he's i think he's considered a very influential artist now in japan i know that the new series that dark horse came out that just finished up um earlier this year new lone wolf and cub the artist that did that was inspired by his his art and and it looks really just about like he just 
the same artist did that series also. But um, yeah, the art in it's just beautiful, uh, very detailed, and it just works for this size. And and again, this is the beauty of black and white comics about how just just ink, how he can give the depth and the motion and just the sound effects, uh, you know, to this comic. And I, I don't even really want to call it a comic. Yeah, it has, definitely has a different feel to it. It's not a doesn't have any sort of a traditional comic feel. This this feels more like uh, I don't know an illustrated history almost. Yeah, it, and I think that that's what they really highlight that it's 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 research for Edo period Japan and it's very very detailed research because they're trying to recreate a lot of Edo Japan, the time of the samurai and Bushido and everything. Yeah, and they, they say at the beginning, there's a note to the readers where they say that there's a lot of stuff that they won't translate because the translation really wouldn't be true to what it is. So they'll have words in there that aren't translated, but then they'll have, uh, you know, like the little uh, asterisks or something. Uh, to And they kind of tell you what it means, but you get a lot of it out of context. Uh, I was also used to that with uh, reading Usagi Yojimbo, because even though Usagi is Stan Sakai, it's... Uh, a more of a cartoon style of art where this is a more realistic style of art. Um, so both styles of art really aren't traditional. Like if you just think comic book art styles, one's a cartooning style. This one's more realistic, but both of them are heavily researched based in history, based in stories by stories. I mean like mythology, um, that sort of thing. And uh, it, it was interesting having read a lot of Usagi before reading this to see the similarities, there's a difference in that this book more graphically depicts violence um, and sex and stuff like that. Uh, it's not exactly heavy in the sex, but when it's part of the story, you know, they aren't overly explicit, but they're explicit in what's going on. Whereas in uh, Usagi Yojimbo, they kind of insinuate and sidestep it, but you Really, like just getting the sense of what's going on can be almost more impactful that way. This is interesting seeing how they, you know, one isn't hiding anything, the other one is keeping it a little bit cleaner, but they both really accomplish the same thing with what they do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I was going to ask, did this influence Usagi Yojimbo? Because this here started in 1970, and I think Usagi started mid 80s. Yeah, this was definitely uh, one of the influences, uh, which is what drew me into it. Um, reading Usagi, and I just fell in love with it so much. Uh, like a lot of people, I was kind of standoffish with it because it is, you know, cartoon animals, basically. Uh, but it really goes to show that you need to give something a try before you say whether or not you like it. Uh, I was an Turtle fan before I was reading Usagi, so it's not like I wasn't already reading anthropomorphic animals of some sort. But I wasn't sure if I wanted to dive into more. But, you know, Sagi had been in Ninja Turtles, which is what was my first exposure to it. But then I had a friend who was also a big Ninja Turtle fan, Kathan, uh, who kept on telling me that Usagi was great. He is a bigger Usagi fan than he even is a Ninja Turtles fan. So I, I finally uh, gave it a try. And as soon as I dipped my toes into it, I stopped where I was at. I went back and started buying it from the very beginning. Because I just knew it was going to be something that I was going to go head head over heels into. Uh, once I got into it that deep, I started looking at it. And I haven't even finished reading it. There's seven Dark Horse omnibus of it. And, and plus, before that, there's two uh, Fantagraphics omnibus of Usagi. 
So right now there's nine omnibus out. I've read through the two Fantagraphics and the first two Dark Horse, so I still have five more to go. But I already started looking, okay, what are the influences to it? Uh, Akira Kurosawa movies was a big influence. I had never even watched a Kurosawa movie. And, uh, you know, I had always known who he was, but that was about it. So I finally watched, uh, there was one on Netflix, uh, Kagamusha. So I watched that one first and then kept on watching for a, a way for me to get uh, Seven Samurai without it costing a fortune because none of his movies are ever cheap. I found no, a pretty good deal on, a, on four of his movies used in a Criterion collection. And once I watched Seven Samurai, I was sold on him. So I'm, at that point, if it's a big influence on Stan Sakai, it's probably worth checking out. Uh, lone Wolf and Cub in, in Usagi, they have a story that's Lone Goat and Kid that's based <laughs> off of Lone Wolf and Cub exactly. Um, so it was really cool reading this and seeing that it, one thing that's been cool with reading Usagi and seeing what when he takes influences from something is you can really like the influence is very obvious. Like some of his stories are parodies, not quite the right word, but they're you know a parody or an homage of of something. So it's really just taking it and doing it in the Usagi style. And uh, the Lone Goat and Kid had that feel of it was very blatantly reminiscent of Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, it's it's influenced a lot of a lot of things, and I actually got one night just YouTubing, and because um, I think Lone Wolf and Cub set off a bunch of a TV series and some movies there in Japan. Probably I can't remember if late seventies or early eighties, and it's it's interesting to sit there and and watch it because I think. The Lone Wolf and Cub, one of the movies, I think, has the distinction of having the most kills in a in a movie. And you you watch Ogami Ito go through the single strokes, and it, it's a movie, too. So it's like, I don't want to say it's a B movie, it's, it, but it's, it's kind of funny. And you sit there and see him just go through this storm of, like, 300 ninja and other fighters and everything, and then with single sweeps just killing them and over the course of like 10 minutes. It's, it's, it's highly entertaining if you go on YouTube and you start looking up some of the sequences from the lone, and I think they were called the baby cart series. So I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's called lone wolf and cub. I think it's baby cart. So if you look, if you YouTube and you Google uh, baby cart movies, then I think these will pop up and it'd be really interesting if they actually turned this into a serious live action movie. Of course, I don't think you could do it overall 28 volumes. (laughs) <laughs> no, that definitely have to be it's just some stories. They they do have. I haven't watched it, but uh, in keeping my eyes peeled for Criterion Collection, uh, uh, Kurosawa things, um, and stuff of that nature, because it seems like Kurosawa movies the only ones you could find are Criterion Collection. So there's some mm-hmm. stores out here that actually divide out Criterion Collection movies. Uh, I mean, even Barnes and Noble, if you go there, like they have a Criterion Collection section. Um, so I'm always just kind of keeping my eyes open. Uh, it's rare that you find something like Kurosawa that's a used copy of it. Like the one that I found, the only reason I found it is the, um, you've, I'm sure heard me mention Bull Moose Music because I mention every time I talk about buying a book. Um, they have uh, several stores and one of them doesn't have the section separated that way. And I found this Akira Kurosawa box set just in with the uh, – 
what did they title it? The the multi-feature movies, which usually multi-feature movies are really crappy movies that are put together and like sold brand new for ten bucks, you know? Yep. So it was just buried there. So I don't think anybody noticed it. And I had gone in there over the course of a couple of months and just kept on. It was still there. It was still there. And I finally looked up the prices of the movies individually, and they're like new. They're thirty bucks each. And this is on DVD. Uh, that they're like thirty bucks each still. Um, and this was four movies, and it was used for like forty-eight bucks. So I just finally said, you know, I'm just gonna get it, and I did. I didn't regret <laughs> it. But uh, um, it, you know, keeping my eyes open, I stumbled across they do have a box set of Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, I believe it was a TV series in uh, in Japan, so you could get that. It's like seventy dollars though. So yeah, someday I'll get that. So after but anyway. <laughs> Well, it's it, it took me a while to get them all, but I, I did. I didn't want to buy them all in one fell swoop. Uh, you know, I'd get one or two a month, and then I'd go a half year and wouldn't get one and everything. But it's it's a it's a very long epic story, a story of you know revenge. I don't think there's any redemption. Um, yeah, there really isn't a redemption in it. So it's and it's it like you said before, it depicts everything, the brutality of it. Uh, the beauty of it, uh, everything of that period and everything. So, Before we dive into the content, the last thing I want to say is, uh, as we've said several times, this is a Dark Horse. Uh, Dark Horse is publishing it. Uh, and Dark Horse just does so good collecting stuff. They make it affordable and approachable. Um, the Omnibuy are $20 for six, 16 stories and uh, if you know how to shop for anything, you can get it for less than that. So, like on InStockTrades.com, uh, Dark Horse is always, I think, 40% off. So, it's $12 for one of these volumes. It's super cheap for all, all that you're getting, and it's really good stuff, too. Yeah, um, and the way, I, the way I got mine, and uh, I think for your Omnibus, it covered uh, two full volumes and then the first two chapters of the third volume. So... Uh, and these were when they originally came out nine ninety five, and when I went to a used bookstore, a half price books, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw they had a full collection there at like four ninety five each. So if if you go out to used bookstores, you can find these now, and they're about five bucks for a volume, and the volumes about all the yeah none of the chapters are like even. Let's see, and this here goes to about chapter twelve. So I got twelve chapters, like in the first volume, ten bucks originally. You can probably find them for half price out there. But I'll tell you, there's going to be twenty-eight of these. <laughs> <laughs> so at five bucks a piece, that's still you know a hundred. If you can find them, that's still one hundred and fifty dollars at half price. Yeah, and just like you said, though, buy it, buy it step by step. That's the great thing about Dark Horse publishing it is you don't have to worry about it disappearing. All right, so let's get into the the actual content of this. So we're not we're not going to go issue by issue and talk about every last detail of it, uh, but we'll start leafing through, talk about what has stood out the most to us. So one thing that happens in every story in this is kind of it's, it's formulaic in this way is that. These are all jobs. Like every single story in, in this volume that I read is him taking a job and doing the job. It doesn't always mm -hmm. start out making it perfectly clear, but that's always the case, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I think the way my volumes are is kind of how they've, they've kind of got it into its beats. So you're right. So my first volume has got 12 chapters, and every chapter is pretty much a 
job of some sort. There's 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 one or two chapters where there's not a job involved, and that's more character development. There's the chapter when you find out the history and why he's doing what he's doing. And then I think there's a chapter, do you remember the story about when he goes to the hot springs? Yeah. Okay, I think those are the only two ones that are not um, that are not where he's taking a job and has to he's basically he's an assassin. So Lone Wolf and Cub, when you first meet him, you you see this this feudal Japan man pushing a cart with his his son in it. He has a flag on his cart. And it's translated to Lone Wolf and Cub Assassins. Well, I think it says Assassins on it. Everybody knows who Lone Wolf and Cub is. So he's at, he's openly advertising that he's an assassin. So let me see. It translates Sun for Hire, Sword for Hire, names his school, and it gives his name. So, And that was one of the interesting aspects. You notice in, he gets into confrontations with other samurai, as is want in feudal Japan. And it's interesting, and I assume this is how it happens in Usagi Ujimbo, is they announce their name, they announce their school, and then they go at each other, and it's usually one strike. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you know what? That's what I find interesting with modern interpretations of fights or sword fights or anything, where there are these long, drawn-out things. And in reality, it was like you rushed your opponent, you got one attempt to strike him down, and him to strike you, and it was it. It was over. Yeah, I think in uh, of, in, in our mo- in you know in, in American movies at least, uh, what we think of as swordplay is based more on like uh, you know fencing and or you know knights with heavy swords where it's you know you're swinging at each other and hoping to get a hit in. But I think that uh, that the samurai type of swordplay we're seeing in this it's more like jousting would be where you're taking one run and you either hit them or they hit you. And if neither one of you hit each other, then it gets messy. <laughs> exactly. So, but anyway, yeah, the book opens up with that. And, you know, he meets, he's meeting with an individual. He takes on his standard fee, uh, 500 Ryu. I don't know if that, that may be how you pronounce it. And then he, then he sets off to, you know, fulfill his job. And they use the first chapter to kind of set up how, how they think and how things work because, uh, you know, a good part of the time, his jobs are straightforward. He, he gets to his target. And another interesting aspect is he announces who he is. It's like, I'm Ogama Ito, assassin. I'm here for you. <laughs> and, and the act takes place. But in this one, it was interesting. They go through and they talk about, and it goes basically how he gets himself in front of whoever he's supposed to assassinate. So usually it's a, they're having to assassinate somebody that's a high level and they got guards. So he uses trickery. He lets himself be captured, brought in front of the individual he's supposed to kill. He's got his son with him. And, you know, his son is in on it too. So he asks his son if he has to pee. He says yes. So they undo him so he can let him pee. And unbeknownst to them, he's got weapons hidden in his baby cart, and he uses the weapon to make the assassination and escape. It's another thing that's a recurring theme in, in this book is uh, his son peeing, being a factor in what's going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but what's interesting is you sit there, and he's. but the thing is, everything he does is to the Bushido code or to Sun Sal's art of war. So... It's like in his first chapter when he's leaving, 
you know, the, the, the other officials there, they're talking amongst themselves and they're going over about how perfectly he planned it and how he used the stratagems in the, the art of war and everything. And they can't, they dare not go against him because he pulled this off so perfectly. And so to the tenants, there was so much honor in it that there's no way they can overcome him because their honor can't match up to his honor. Yeah. And that's the big thing that, that uh, even he iterates in it is uh, he goes into everything in a way that when he goes out of the job, he has no fear of repercussion with how he does it. There, there's always something that's going to protect him from the people hiring him, coming after him. Uh, and, you know, he always has a very thoroughly planned out with it. Not only is he is he clever. Uh, he's not just living by the seat of his pants, and you know he's clever enough to stay one step ahead, like you see in a lot of stories. Um, you know, like we we both read Valiant. Ninjack has been presented that way a lot. He just dives in, but he's always able to stay one step ahead. Uh, Aladdin in the Disney cartoon, you know, that's he has a whole song about it. You know, that's not mm-hmm. what uh, what Lone Wolf is doing. He's not just staying one step ahead. He's following rigorous structure of how things should be done uh, and being so witty in how he does everything that all of his bases are covered. Like each of his plans is it's like uh, planning out a chess match and you see uh, chess greats go into a match and uh, they know how it's all going to unfold because they know every strategy. So he knows everything that's going to happen. Yeah, and and he does it so honorably that the you know everybody's so dumbfounded. And the thing is, then and then his son uh, Degoro is in on it too. He's like three, four years old, and it's like, hey Degoro, do this, go go do that. And it's like they've almost planned things out with with how he uses his son to basically um, turn the advantage to him. Because everybody sees the three-year-old, and they just they just think he has no part in this, and he plays a big part in you know how he acts and how he allows his father to get in get in close, and then all the other different implements that are actually on the baby cart because he's got the baby, and, he, and that baby cart's armed to the teeth. Okay, yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, in in this volume, they have the one story where the kids steal it to use it as a sled because they think it's abandoned, and then when they crash the sled. One of the blades pop out and cut one of the kids. Yep. And that gets him uh, caught when he's, uh, I believe, trying to recover from something. Do you think his uh, his actions are honorable? Because one of the things that stands out is the difference between this and uh, the character of Usagi Ojimbo in that title is Usagi is honorable. He's a ronin, but he's, uh, he's a ronin in like the most honorable way to be a ronin. He's not just a ronin because he's a masterless samurai. He's actually taking the journey that that is meant to be. And he won't do things that are unhonorable or dishonorable. Um, whereas lone wolf, he's an assassin. He, every single job he does, he's not doing it for honor. He's doing it for money. I think he's not so much honorable as he is, uh, um, proper. Uh, yes, um, you haven't gotten into the story far enough, so to where a lot of that backstory is explained. If you get the chapter, I forget what it is. It's in the first volume. You find out 
who he is, like the two stories we talked about, um, where there's no assassination, there's one where he goes to the hot springs and he's going to the hot springs to rest, uh, recover. And there's a group of bandits that have taken it over. And you know, these are stories in this volume too. Yeah. And you know, these bandits are terrorizing, they're raping, they're acting like the big man. I mean, they're threatening everything. And he just kind of walks in. It's like, Hey, we're going to, me and my son are going to spend the night. They do stuff to him and all that and force him to do stuff or they'll kill the, kill the people. And, um, he spends the night and in the morning, you know, they're getting ready to leave and they tell him the, the, the they've got the villagers there and they've got some guests and they're going to kill the guest to force the villagers not to say anything because they keep moving to keep ahead of the authorities. And then Lone Wolf and Cub come out and they're getting ready to leave and the guys are going, what are you doing? It's like, we rested, we're going to leave. And they're like, no, you're not. And then finally one of them recognizes him and he tells the, the others, it's like, leave him alone. Do not mess with him. And this one guy's like, screw him. And he's, I think he throws something at him and then, uh, he dodges and then Lone Wolf just throws one of his, uh, spears and just impels the guy. Mm-hmm. And then what you find out, you know, the, the very last thing he, he's the, the one guy that recognizes him sits there and goes, I won't tell anybody. I won't tell anybody. Spare me. And then the last thing is, I won't tell anybody that you're the Shogun's executioner. And he just kills him and goes on. And then the next story, you finally get his backstory. So, Ogami Ito was the Shogun's executioner. And in feudal Japan, you know, Shogun is the emperor who is basically, um, I, I don't want to say they're God on earth because they were kind of practicing Buddhist. So this is Buddha, but, you know, he was the ultimate leader, ultimate authority. But he couldn't bring himself down to do uh, duties that would disgrace his... Um, holiness or whatever you want to call it. So we, so only somebody of higher rank could perform seppuku on a lower rank. So, you know, that was the ritualistic suicide if you dishonored yourself. So the shogun's executioner was act, would act as the shogun and would perform the, I forget the technical term for it, but once you committed seppuku, uh, your second would then decapitate you to ease the pain after you've already disemboweled yourself. So he represented the Shogun for the rank and file that, or the, the next below that would report to the Shogun. So that was his role. And the way the government was set up was in three, um, I don't know, powers. So you had the Shogun, then you had the Shogun's assassins, the Shogun's um, spies, and then the... Uh, the executioner and there was three families that had that and what you find out is the family that ran the assassins was wanting to get more power so they framed ogami's family who the or the the ito clan so that he got disgraced and they could take it over so then you find out that's why he's now a ronin or an assassin is because he got uh, framed by out of the shogun's court. Now what's he doing? He's, you know, running the road, being an assassin. Does he have some kind of ulterior motive for, for doing that? Is he just going to do that for the rest of his life? Or does he, is he collecting all of the money for some purpose? 
Is he investigating? Is he roaming around? What exactly is he trying to do? So he's been, you know, he's been framed and he told his son. And, you know, that was a pretty good chapter, that last one there, when you find that all out, because he actually gave Degoro uh, um, a choice. It's like he could pick the ball and then he would basically kill him to join his mother or he could pick the sword and go with him on the path of the assassin. Yep, yeah, I think he pretty much just covered over the the meat of the story that wasn't that isn't just the like the one shot stories of the jobs that he's doing. Uh, but that was the meat of the the story of I, I guess like the progressive story in in the book so far. Um, so like you said, he started off one of the things about this time in Japan is uh, pretty much if you're in power, you can tell somebody to kill themselves. Yeah, they're basically. Under you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's basically the position he's put in. They've set it up uh, to dishonor him so they could say, okay, now kill yourself because we say so because they want to get him out of the way. So he has to choose to follow honor and do that, which obviously, you know, with – real logic that's not really honor to kill yourself because somebody framed you and then tells you to kill yourself um or he could take the assassin's road and basically just like you know f all this i'm just gonna start killing people uh that's what he decides to do and that's uh you know all throughout this every time they talk about it that is a uh it's a i mean it's a pathway to hell like he knows that that's what it is he gives his son the the opportunity to choose his son's a baby he puts out a ball and he puts out a, a sword or a blade i can't remember exactly what it was um and just like you said he basically is telling his son this when his son is too young to know what he's saying but you know if you choose the ball then you choose to not go on this murderous road with me and i'll kill you so that way you can go be with your dead mother um, or you come and join me on this, and then your your um, your destiny is the same as mine. And that's why throughout the book, he is completely fearless with his son's life, because his son is part of this journey. He's on the road with him, um, so he, he's never afraid for his son's life. He's never trying to defend his son. So his son is never a burden to his ends. Um, but his son has been taught to be a means to his end, so he's he's a tool to help him. And without that fear of losing his son, there's the the one story in here where his son is waiting in the cave for him, but he gets buried under an avalanche, and he just is like, he's probably dead. We'll see when I'm done. <laughs> I'll be back in five days. We'll check then. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> fortunately, he uh, causes another avalanche that pushes away the first one, and his son's fine. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So and it's, it's a twisted, it's a twisted thing because he is choosing a dishonorable life. But what the honorable thing would have been would have been, you know, ridiculous. He, well, he's choosing you know, the dishonorable life because he doesn't accept the dishonor that's really been perpetrated on him. But then to continue going down this road he's on. He has to live a dishonorable life. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think it also said that the rest of his clan was killed. So, like, they're the only ones also left of his clan. So he's he's been framed. He's been dishonored. His clan's been wiped out. And he knows who did it. They're brazen about they did it. And, you know, he's not just going to go quietly <laughs> into the night. I mean, it is interesting because then you see the contrast because there's the story of where – 
one of the lords of the hands, and the hand is the or hand, not the hand, like in TMNT, but hand, H-A-N, I guess that's a, how they divided it up into like states or provinces or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was the one story where you've got the one leader of the, the, the hand that's ruining it, and these the his managers, I forget the you know the the, the Japanese name for it, but the, the guys immediately under him, his lieutenants, they can't see stand to see the hand go down, so they hire Lone Wolf and Cub or Lone Wolf and Cub to kill their master. And once they hire him, they then commit suicide because they've dishonored themselves for having their master killed, but they have to do it so that their hand doesn't get um, go into even further jeopardy with either the Shogun or a neighboring hand. So it's, it's interesting to see that contrast. Yeah. You know, they're doing a, they're doing a dishonorable act and they're having to do seppuku to recover from the dishonorable act to save, save the people that they're charged with saving. Yeah. That's one thing that in both this and uh, in Usagi, there was a story that was one of the most heartbreaking stories I've read so far in there um, about a mother who, when her husband died, her son became the, uh, you know, the the whatever level of ruler it was. I don't know if it was if it was a hand like we're talking about here, um, or if it was just like kind of a town or whatever. But uh, he was very corrupt, and so this mother saw her son basically destroying everything that the father had had taken such good care of, and the only solution is to kill her son. And so throughout, you know, by the end of the story, she does that. And so then she's, um, you know, sorrowful for having to do it and kind of asking for condolences from Usagi. And Usagi is just like, no, you have to live with what you did and walks away from her. Um, it's just really heartbreaking because you see that, you know, she had to do what she, what she did for the greater good, but it was still a dishonorable thing to do. That's I, I just yeah that the story that you're mentioning here is so crazy like okay we're gonna hire you to do this because this person's corrupt and destroying things but we still have to kill ourselves because of it yeah I think that was the one where Degaro got under the avalanche like you were talking about mm-hmm. was a guy met him he created he, yeah he committed suicide then he met him in the cave and they were leaving Degaro there and the four of them were going up and the, they were wanting to get uh, Ito into the castle, so he was going to have to fight the four and defeat them, so it would, so they would trust him. And so they said, well, "We're not going to give any quarter." <laughs> he says, "I'm not going to give any either." And I mean, he, then he proceeded to wipe them out, and that's how he got into the castle to kill the Lord to save the Han because he was what building a castle. And if he built a castle, it was a direct opposition to the Shogun, and then the Shogun would come in and just just crush everything. So. Yeah, it's and it's again and it shows how the planning and the, everything that went into all these hits because they just keep getting I don't want to say elaborate, but you know, you there's subterfuge and using honorable and or well, I don't want to say honorable, but the ways of the system and the ways of their customs to get in front of the people that he had to get in front of. Mm-hmm. So, um but I mean and, you know, that's kind of how it goes, I think, if you go, you know, that kind of gets through, I think, the first half of your omnibus there. And then I think the rest of the stories are pretty much the same again, but now you you, you get a little bit more character uh, building. And then you also start to get a little bit more 
uh, involved in the fight about what's involved in them. Like there's, you start to see care instead of your generic, uh, Ronin or generic samurai, you start seeing characters that have unique, uh, skills and abilities. Like there was the three brothers he had to face. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in their school of fighting. And I, I find that interesting when they sit there and they start talking about the schools of fighting. Like, there's one where it's like upward horse stroke. And it's like, how did you counter that? And it's like, my Ryu school of of blade whatever. And, <laughs> you know, it's like those old 70s uh, kung fu movies where my kung fu is mightier than your kung fu. Mm-hmm. About how they keep going through all, how they keep through and all that. But I think that, like, the second... The next interesting story that came in there was the, the living Buddha. How yeah. would you like that story? Where he he could not, until he became, what was it, cleansed his mind of all thought and all intent, he could not kill this one uh, man who was the living Buddha of the village. And so you had this whole story of where he's sitting there and he's meditating, you know, be one with the tree, be one with the mountain, be one. And he's up on this mountain and there's these wolves and you've got to become so, I don't know, empty that the wolves will leave you alone. And so he's having, you know, he has to fight the wolves every so often. He finally does it. And then at that point, then he can go kill this living Buddha of this village, (laughs) which is, which is, again, it's where. Some of the higher the polit well the the people responsible for the safety of the Han need to raise taxes, but the Buddha won't let them, so they keep getting more and more in debt, and so they have to do the dishonorable thing to hire him to kill somebody to say you know the to to do the honorable thing of saving the Han, and that that also seems to be a recurring theme in here is like you know does a dishonorable act get canceled out by the honorable uh, intentions of it. Yeah, that, that's one th- that's an interesting dichotomy in this is uh, over and over we're seeing that where to do the honorable thing would be to let the person in charge basically destroy something, whether it be people, whether it be the, the town, whether it be something greater than that. So people are having to, to be dishonorable to save people, but you know, it just, it's like saving people isn't the most honorable thing. It just it's it, it's a, a, a difficult dichotomy for us to really process. Uh, so you see, just over and over and over again in this, where uh, you know, they're the only people who are really logically out for themselves are like the bandits, where it's just all about them. Um, it, going back to Seven Samurai, uh, there's the one guy who in in this of the seven. That uh, isn't actually a samurai. He's a farmer, uh, but his family was killed by samurais who came and just bled them dry, basically, uh, because they would just come and take and take and take from the farmers. And there's uh, the point where they're they're in this village that they're trying to protect. That's the whole you know the center of the story. And they realize that all these farmers in this village, who they think of as just being something kind of lesser. Um, and they realize that they're hoarding food and they're hoarding uh, alcohol and they're hoarding all these things and hiding it away. And they get this, you know, well, you know, screw these people. You know, they're just out for themselves. But then they start to, to realize because of this one samurai that's really a farmer 
tells them that's what everybody you know if if you're not living honorable and just going to sacrifice yourself because somebody tells you to then you're out for yourself and that's it's it's a strange world where you know logic and honor are definitely not the same thing no exactly so i guess get get back on some more of the technical aspects how do do you like how they do the fight scenes in here i mean because you know they'll 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 zoom in on a little piece of the action and then you have almost like the the splash page shot and back and forth. I really like you know how the artist you know broke breaks up his panels and you know you'll have all the detail in the panel. And then you'll have the panel where it's just a little bit of detail. Then you got the blur of all the motion on it to kind of convey how the fight's going and everything. It's just really well done. Yeah, and I feel like his style even is developing a lot as this goes on. Uh, Particularly earlier on, there were times where you just really couldn't tell what was happening. And as you go on, he does a better job of giving a sense of what, where the line of the motion is, which kind of guides you through the image to see to see what's going on in a lot of action being in a still picture, basically. I'm on this one panel, this fight scene. It's The, the layouts are interesting in this sometimes. Like in this, it's two pages, um, and there are... There's a, a panel on the, the top third of the left page and a panel on the top third of the right page. There's a big panel that runs across the middle of both pages, and there's four more panels on the bottom. So you get a sense of these people standing back watching him coming. Then you get their view of the people in front of them that are already recoiling at Lone Wolf coming through them. This is a, He's going up against a lot of people here. Um, then you get the big panel across the middle where he's in the midst of it all. Then you go down to the bottom panels where you start to see people flying back, limbs flying off, heads flying off. So the, the way they kind of build it up, you get this uh, this sense of tension of death is just coming our way. Then you get it, you, it's in the midst of everything, and then you just, everything is flying apart. That, it does a lot to, to really build the violence of the scene. Yeah, I mean, it's a really dynamic, and it's just really something to say about how he can do that with just black and white. And do, do you also notice that there seems to be some, you know, you've, he's got a style, but every once in a while, then you'll get a page where it looks like he watercolored it or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that seems to have no rhyme or reason, but then it kind of, it, it, it works. I mean, it's almost like the big cinematic pullbacks pages is when it looks like it's just got a little bit more or a different style. Like he's gone either pastel or watercolor or there's more shading or something in it. Yeah, he definitely has the occasional page that is just really highly detailed, watercolored. And then you get some some pages where the action just gets so hot and heavy that the detail drops down a lot. Uh, and then after the page I was just talking about uh, that that builds the action, you go to the next page and it's Lone Wolf in the middle, and it's definitely kind of a, a sketchier style, less detailed in this. Uh, everything around him is kind of grayed out. And you see a lot of letters depicting the sound of what's happening and a lot of just, like, kind of white slash marks through it. So it just gives you the sense, like, after this page that really builds one moment, it just gives the sense of he's working through just this field of people killing everybody. And uh, then the very next panel is everything is kind of normal brightness around him and just everybody's dead, everybody's down. Yep. Uh, as we talked about earlier with the one-on-one fights about how it's not a big battle that stretches on. It's they prepare, they get set, and they basically take one shot at each other. 
these big battles, I, I think what most people would be used to in a big battle is them highlighting these different moments where, you know, even if it's one guy against a ton, it's, it's almost like they're coming up to him one at a time. So he could, okay, I'm going to chop your head off. I'm going to stab you through the chest. Okay, on to the next person. I'm going to do this. But that's not how it is when you're being attacked by all these different people. You're defending and attacking everybody at the same time, so they can't depict that. It would, you know, it'd be a mess if they tried to depict that. So the, doing these scenes where it gives you kind of a sense of motion and gives you like the fringe effects of the violence, but it doesn't really focus in on on the individual details of what's happening. Because that's not really the reality of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, he's just leaving it up to you, but it's more realistic where it's not one-on-one. They're, you know, these are like when he's fighting peasants or not, or I guess warrior class that's not samurai. And they're coming at it mass, and they're coming out from all sides and everything at the same time. And the key is also, Degoro's on his back. Mm-hmm. And he's doing all this. <laughs> He's like he like tells the girl, okay, hold on tight. <laughs> if you don't hold on, it's, you're on your own. <laughs> it's funny reading through this the first time. I was I was loving it. I was going through it pretty quickly. Uh, you know, but I read through the stories and I'd be like, well, yeah, these are a lot of good stories, but I wonder how many are really going to stand out to me afterwards. It seemed like you know there'd probably be a handful that stood out, but as I look through this. All of these stories, really, when you kind of flip back to the beginning of them and see what they are, these are all some, like, there's meat to every single one of these. It's not like any of them are just kind of action throwaways. Um, I'm in the last few of them, and there's Tragic Osu, and Osu is basically the, uh, the like, lowest level of servant in a household, so it's like a young girl. So this household mm-hmm. gets this Osu, Lone Wolf's son is just playing and he basically gets bullied by uh by the the lord of the the young lord of the household so the you know it's a, a kid but he's cub he's you know lone wolf's cub so he knows how to kill people and stuff so he pulls out a sword and slashes at the kid uh the kid yeah, i think he i think he i think he takes the kid's own sword and slashes at him just yeah takes it from him yeah, that's that's exactly what happens. Um, and he, and he's like half his age and half his size. He's three. He's a three year old. <laughs> and so they they capture him, and you know they're they're figuring out what to do with him, and they know the stories of Lone Wolf and Cubs, so they figure out, and so then they start getting paranoid, thinking that Lone Wolf is there to get them. So they're ba- they're being pretty abusive to the kid, um, and then. The, the Osu, this young girl, has mercy on him, basically. Um, and Degoro refers to her as sister, just as a term of endearment. Um, but they think that it's actually his sister. So, oh, we didn't lo- know Lone Wolf had a daughter. So they're trying to beat a, conf- a confession out of her. So, I mean, they're just ready. They, they think Lone Wolf is there to them. They're beating the crap out of these kids, trying to get something out of them. Degoro has been raised to deal with stuff, so he's he's not flinching. Um, he finally gets free and goes and gets his dad. This is one of the few stories in this that he's not there for a job, but he goes and he kills everybody. 
Uh, well, what's because, hilarious is like, yeah, he goes and he, and I think his dad's recovering from a fever. Yeah, so he he's comes hallucinating in and hardly yeah. able to function. <laughs> yeah, but but Degoro goes in and he doesn't actually ask his dad for help. He goes in and grabs his dad's sword. He starts to walk out with it, and it's great because his son, his son goes, "I don't know what you've done, but can you reap what you've sown?" Yeah. So, so he's kind of he's kind of like, well, you, you got yourself into this. You got to get yourself out. So, yeah, this is one but, of those stories that that leaves you feeling like you want, you know, I, whenever you read something, you have to align yourself with the protagonist of the story. Uh, that's one of the great things about reading literature is it, it makes you think more empathetically with uh, with other people, even if. They're terrible people sometimes. You know, you read some some books that the protagonist is a bad person, but if you're going to read it, you have to empathize with them because you have to understand them. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're reading this, whenever you're in that position to empathize with somebody, you want to feel like they're good. You want to see the good in them and, and the honor in them. That's one of the stories where it's it's such a nice, like, you know, he he's giving these bad people their comeuppance. Uh, well, he is. It's 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 nice though because they come up and he's just like, I don't know what's going on. You know, can we talk about it? And they kind of give him the look, pull the swords, and he just goes, "Well, it seems you'd rather not talk." And he just goes, <laughs> takes care of business. I mean, he he kind of you know he had no quarrel with him and all that, and he was kind of like, "Hey, you know, okay, just just go your way." Nope. All right. And that's when he did the famous. I guess it has to be in every movie where you catch the sword with your hands mm-hmm. between the palms of your hands and he turned that against them but did you also notice in this story that it's snowing and then in every panel or most of the panels 90 percent of them you actually has all the different individual snowflakes mm-hmm. yeah all those details those are the things that when you're going through this to you it's it's easy to not notice the level of details in a lot of this uh, but those details, that, that's what adds um, – the details you don't notice add the layers to the art that make it just really suck you in. Yes. And, I mean, the story, the art, and everything is just – it's just great. And, you know, I kind of envy you that you get – you know, you still got, what, 11 volumes to go and haven't read it? Yep. <laughs> because, I mean – and. It gets a little bit more detailed, and you get to learn a little bit more about his plan, and you start getting a little bit more politics involved. So I know in the first, like the first volume, I got like story nine. When you meet, you see who it is that frames him. It's the Yagyu clan, and the leader of the Yagyu clan is Rintoro. I think that's his name. I'm trying to find it. Um, you get. Later in, as you get into the volumes, you find out where he starts hunting him down and sending stuff against him. And now, now you've got the deeper, you know, political uh, intrigue going on, and uh, uh, you know, ninjas because he's because that's was the uh, ninja clan is what he was ahead of, and so you start seeing them going against him and all the little, you know, the things like that. And you start seeing the ninja versus samurai tactics, and the, you know. Then you start seeing stuff that Ito considers dishonorable, that he would never do. I think that, like the out of all of the the, the chapters in this first volume, like like the, from yours, I think the most interesting story was actually the last one when he meets that, um, I don't know, wandering master. 
Yeah, the, that the former samurai that is doing tricks, basically. Yes, or he's yeah, and you know the trick is it's like he puts his head in the mat and he says if you can cut it off you win. <laughs> he's and you can use like I think he's got swords and spears and hammers and such and he's just like hey for thirty coppers put your thirty coppers down if if you can take my head off then you can have all my money. One of the it's an amazing story. Um, so this this other samurai who Lone Wolf can see is a master. And he's using his skills to make, you know, make pocket change just doing tricks because he knows that he's not worried about himself getting killed. He doesn't have to hurt anybody. You know, living a life of killing people, he, you know, he sees that that is not a worthwhile life. Uh, So eventually in the story, he he basically tells Lone Wolf that he cannot let him continue down the assassin's road. Uh, it's you know he's he's honor bound duty bound to stop him, so they set up their duel, and as they're preparing it, you know they're they're set up, and it goes through these gray panels where it's showing all these possible outcomes that can happen. Yeah, I think that's where they're each thinking. So I guess they're this. But the point of this story is like when two samurai face each other, what's going through their heads? Because I guess if you know which school your opponents from you're thinking of how am i going to counter their move how are they going to get me if i do this oh okay he's going to get me this way and if i do this oh he's going to get me this way and i that's those i think that's what those grayed out panels are is you yeah. know what's going they're, they're thinking through it's like how to approach the duel so you know up until this point i think you've what had 15 stories where it's just like they face each other they give each other the eye and then they attack here it kind of shows what's going through their head before they do that so, yeah, so they go through the process of, uh, of thinking about what the other will do based on knowing what they know about each other and the, the school that they come from. Um, it's, what's so cool about this one is they go through all this, so they both know what the outcome should be. and But then when they actually move, Lone Wolf is the one who, who wins this battle. Uh, but immediately he says, you, you should have won. You, know, you you should have won this fight, and it I, I just love that. I mean, not only just uh, the way they set it up, but for him to be like, "What happened? You should have won." So this other samurai knew how to win, still didn't. It has to be intentional. And uh, so you know, why did he do this? You know, he was doing this because he didn't want to take a life, but he wanted to affect a life. He wanted his his actions to have a deeper meaning to have a bigger meaning than just killing somebody yeah i think like his last remarks are it's like like think of your child's future return to the world of the living headless sakan's dying wish and he's like you know even if he knows that that lone wolf is pretty much lost there's this you know little child there that even with all that he's been trained to be there's still a chance for redemption yeah and then it's like as lone wolf walks away he, he you can see him kind of a tear coming from his eye as he mourns the loss of a master that's taught him a lesson, but he still must continue down the path. He's, it's just, yeah, that's, that's just, it's just a really good story. And, you know, it just, it just keeps on like that. So, you know, the, the author and the artist, they, they, they researched it, they planned each story, and it only gets better as you go through it. I mean, I can't say enough about this series. It's a great yeah. series. I really can't it's wait just, to get the next volume. We didn't go in depth into all the stories, um, a few of the other ones 
that, uh, I mean, by now we're almost going to touch on all of them, but there's the story, uh, the one that we mentioned at the beginning where the kids find his cart and steal it for a sled, uh, and that's how they figure out that this man is uh, is hiding in there, and they, they link him to these, uh, these murderers. Uh, so this story, basically, there is a woman who uh, becomes a prostitute voluntarily, and because of this, she also fetches a high price because she's clearly very set apart from the other prostitutes. Uh, she does this to save up enough money to hire Lone Wolf to assassinate uh, the people who basically drove her into this, who killed her husband and drove her into this. Um, and she yeah, but, killed yeah, that was a compli- yeah, it was a complicated story how that was. Yeah, it was it was a very, very interwoven story where there are all these different pieces that you can kind of see that stuff fits together. But throughout it, you don't know that Lone Wolf was the one who killed the uh, the the couple um, that are basically the villains of this story. Um, you don't know why this uh, this prostitute killed herself. You know that she comes from from the samurai class so there's no reason she should have been a prostitute um and so just that is shocking in itself um there's missing money 500 missing rio uh that's lone wolf's fee so by the end it it all comes together it's just a really beautifully interwoven story like not only is it us one of the stories in the book that give you the satisfaction of revenge for a real misdeed being um you know being exacted but just it's it's such so well interwoven you know some some stories try to do this and they just come off really contrived and this one does does not it just is so well done that was one of the yeah. highlights for me um we, we talked a little bit earlier about the one with the uh, the hot springs that i think was probably the most uh brutal story in this book and i think that's my favorite out of the at least first 16 is the hot springs one because then that's that's when you realize kind of who you're dealing with i mean up until that point it's just like hey here's an assassin at that point it's when you start figuring out oh there's more to this backstory there's something interesting going on you know you know people kind of recognize him for from his school and everything but this is the first time somebody recognizes who he is and they're just terrified of him and, you, and you've seen him do stuff, because also in that story, I think that's the one where, like, they, I mean, you also get the ones where he's just, like, sitting there meditating against the wall, and somebody will throw a knife or a sword at him mm-hmm. to make him flinch, and he won't move, and it might scratch him a little bit, or it'll just be right beside his head, and he just won't do anything, and they're all, like, amazed. I think this is the one where they do that, and it's sitting there, and the guy asks for his dagger back, so he just takes it, and he throws it back, and it just it lands in his uh, sheath. That that was the story with uh, the three other. Uh, the, oh no, you're right. That's yeah, the, the yeah. three brothers. That's one of the three brothers. That's a great story too. I'll get to we'll get to that in a second. This is the one where he goes into the town that's over. It's the hot springs. It's overran by the, um, this crew of of criminals, um, and it's just brutal. I mean, in just in introducing what's going on, uh, you see a guy run down a girl who's just a village girl and rape and kill her just in front of everybody 
and yep, it just really sets the tone. It's just absolutely brutal. It, this is uh, this was one of the stories that like it it kind of pushed boundaries for for my comfort level with stuff. I really don't like stories that are based uh, on on rape. Basically, this one like right off the bat, like that's setting the brutality level of what's going on. So it was it's a little hard to swallow for me going into this already. So I already really, really want to see him just kill all these people. Yeah, I mean, it was there to set the tone. Yeah, and he knows he can't do anything there. He knows that if he defends and that's where the line between like being really honorable and being really precise is drawn in him. Now, he wants to. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, he wants to get out of there, but he shows throughout it that he also, like, he'll he'll do what he can to protect people who don't deserve to be killed. But in that case, if he tries to protect this girl, it's, it, you know, it, it's a fight that he doesn't know if he could win at that point. They, you know, throw him in with the rest of the, the captured uh, low lives that aren't a part of the group, um, and there's the... the, the I guess prostitute in in the group there that she won't put up with the crap and she's ready to get killed for it. She doesn't care if they kill her. She she's not going to put up with the crap that these uh, these criminals are trying to give them. So this one little dirtbag decides that uh, if she'll screw Lone Wolf right there in front of everybody, that they'll let her live. They think that Lone Wolf is so terrified that he'll do whatever he has to do, but he's doing it to protect her, and she's the only one that realizes it. And so that, that's the part of it that really shows that, I mean, he could have just sat there and not done anything and let them kill her. What would have mattered to him? Uh, it matters more in the story as the story goes on from that point, because she was there to find him. Um but he didn't know that at this point either. Not that it also really would have mattered in the grand scheme of things. But uh, it, it just—he's uh, willing to, to sacrifice what he can sacrifice. He at no time is he worried more about face than he's worried about uh, not letting people manipulate him, so he can always keep the upper hand. Exactly. You know, even when he seems he's in the direst straits, he's—he's kind of where he wants to be. Like, um, I guess that takes it back to the other story, like when he's in the prison. Yeah, oh, God, I love that story. That one might, the the hot springs might be my favorite. The prison one with the arsonist might be my favorite. Yeah, because you're sitting there, it's like, well, what's he doing? So he gets in, gets himself thrown in prison. Then he starts a riot. So he kills some people. So he gets himself thrown on death row so he can get into the same cell with this guy. And he's... It's an arsonist, and then he's set up stuff in there from, like, a week earlier or three days earlier because he knew he was going to put himself in this exact situation so he could, you know, hit his mark and get out. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, not only do you see the level of planning that he has and how perfect everything has to be planned, but uh, just the, I mean, the bells on the guy. Like, he, he isn't, he's unflappable. Like, nothing gets to him you know, yeah he, he's not afraid of death he's not afraid of killing people he's not afraid of of getting the crap beat out of him when he has to take it he's not afraid of losing face like at no time does ego supersede anything else it's just uh god i, I really did love that story and that that's one where it's extra satisfying because you're getting the revenge of it it comes down to the person who hired him 
And I also love the reveal of, the, of that story. There's some of the stories where you don't know why what's going on is going on, and it doesn't get revealed till towards the end of the story. That in in the one with the arsonist, he was hired by the is it the the wife or the daughter of the warden who had to commit seppuku because an arsonist started a fire in the prison and uh, he had to let them out and he had to on like give them the honor yeah. system of coming back. Yeah, that that was the thing too. It's like yeah, so if there's a fire, protocol is all you let all the prisoners go. You tell them and they're supposed to be honorable enough to come back. And some of them didn't come back. So since they didn't come back, the warden had to commit, <laughs> commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And then to, yeah, but, to add to those it, elements, the, the intricacy of the story, because it's not just as simple as that revenge. There's another level to the revenge here. Yeah, because I think he was hired to kill the arsonist, but then he gets in and he finds out that the arsonist was hired by the deputy warden. And that, oh, by the way, the 12 people that didn't come back, well, 11 of them I saw killed, and they were deposited, not shown. That's why they didn't come back. So everybody did come back. So it was a total setup. And, you know, so at that point, you know, I think that's one of the things where he's – the mark he's been told is the person who dishonored my father so that he had to commit seppuku. So it wasn't – he found out it wasn't the arsonist which I guess we've run the story for him. It wasn't the arsonist. It was for the guy inside that the, the deputy warning that hired the arsonist. And then he got his just desserts. Yeah. And see, I, I think in this story too, I think that, that she knew that this new warden was at the root of things, but didn't have any proof or didn't, didn't know the truth of it. So the, the way that it was, uh, that the mission was conducted was conducted in a way to draw that out, uh, the the arsonist told the story, but then also when that warden came in, uh, he also kind of gave, gave up the truth of what happened too, and he didn't know that Lone Wolf was right there to hear him and then kill him. So it just yeah. the intricacies of it, it was just great. I mean, it was uh, just like the uh, the other story where just they, there's all these moving pieces. And you don't know, quite know how they're going to settle till right at the very end, and they all come together. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, for me that was the that's the first story of volume two. So yeah, now you know that's the that's the first story after you find out his history that he was the Shogun's executioner. Then you get to this prisoner thing. So I guess that helps explain why he knew all the protocols for yeah, what happens when a if a prison burns, what are the prisoners supposed to do? They're supposed to come back. This is why the ward would have to kill himself. This is how you get on death row. This is where death row's at. You know, if I'm going to be in death row, I need to put this put this stuff, make this stuff accessible so I can get to it. So I guess death row is just one big room they throw you in, everybody that's on it. Yep. <laughs> and... <laughs> And he's, I mean, and he placed this in there like three days before and just went to the plan and it just worked. And it's just, it's, it's just a thing of beauty when you see all, when you get to the end of a story and you see what, how he had to sequence everything. And then you get to the next story and you get to see that again, how, okay, he's, how he set up the situation and he gets through it, does his thing. You know, maybe something unexpected will come up. He gets through it and he goes on to the next one. He's, it's almost like he's just, he's just totally, since he's on this path, 
you know, he's got the demon in him. He's doing the path of the demon, path of the assassin. There's like nothing can stand against him because he's got this frame of mind and he's just that makes him do these actions that just makes him unbeatable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it just keeps getting reinforced because then, you know, people will look into his eyes or look into his son's eyes and they're like, oh, there's a lot of death been seen by those eyes. I'm not messing with that. And that's that's what makes the uh, the story about the Osu so great too. Is on its own, it's good. But then when you see stories like this one, where he is so intricate that you don't see it coming, and then when it's you you know when it's up and you you're about to be killed, and you realize that everything that you thought was in your favor was planned uh, to get to this moment to kill you exactly how it was meant to happen. You understand why these people in the Osu story were so damn paranoid. Like, their paranoid was totally justified, because you know what? If he was going to come and kill you, those were the kind of things he would have done. Exactly. I mean, it's like, when he shows up, it's like, you know you're screwed, because he's already got everything manipulated such that you're right where he wants you to be. He's where he wants to be. And you're just waiting for him to, you know, pull the, do the stroke or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. So I think the last story that we didn't talk too much about that really stood out to us is the one with the brothers. Uh, so they're hired to protect uh, basically an informant. So when two Hans are at odds with each other and uh, the Shogunate decides the case, they send people to basically tell, tell their sides of the story. And when one side knows they're going to lose... They try to just assassinate the other side because that way it kills their case. Yeah, so exactly. These brothers were hired to protect somebody, and we start off the story seeing them get tested and seeing them uh, use and they, just everything about them is set up to be. I mean, almost to make them otherworldly. Like they they have the I don't know the name of it, but the the big kind of uh, they're like yeah I don't really, know what you call it. yeah they're really wide brim the kind of uh, triangle shaped wide brim circle hats um, that really kind of hide what's going on. Um, the one guy has like the bear claw uh, that he he uses, and they just they brutally kill these people that that are testing them and, and trying to take them down. It's just it's something that really kind of sets them apart. Like it's almost like they're gods or demons, you know. Um, and that was the one where Lone Wolf is just sitting there against the wall, and they see that there's something about him, just like he's able to see their stuff about them. They throw the knife right by his head. He just ignores it. When they ask for it back, without even opening his eyes, he grabs it out of the wall and throws it straight into the the scabbard. Yeah. And and that's and it's interesting because then they start talking and it's like oh well you know because he knows that when he does that that they know who he is yeah so he like doesn't game care recognizes game right there they they both know they know what the well, other they, are and they know that because yeah. they're running into each other there's a reason for it yeah and that's the thing and they go and he goes well if you know I'm assassin why'd you have me come along with you it's like well if we can see you we know where you are <laughs> so it's like it's like you know it's the whole keep your enemies closer thing they're doing exactly like that it's like if you're on the boat we know where you are so you can't go and get our get get your mark if you're with us mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so all throughout the story it's kind of they, they build up your respect of these three brothers because you see their height of skill um it's just impressive so just like we're impressed by lone wolf because we know he can go into any situation and 
take on you know any number of foes and come out on top. These guys are the same. We know that they're both hired for a job, so these are people that are just they're doing their job. And just like with Lone Wolf, we root for him to get through his job successfully uh, because he's our protagonist. This is one where the antagonist would be a protagonist in another story. So we're kind of a, a you know conflict here where you don't really mm-hmm. want to see them have to die because, you know what, you would totally love a story that was just about them, too. No, but exactly. It's good. They're going to have to throw down, and when it comes down to it, these three brothers who are all hugely impressive in what they can do lose to one guy. Yep. And what's interesting also is, I mean, they get their talking, and it's like, so they sit there and like, yeah, we know who you were. We know you're an assassin, but we don't know if you're after our target. So honor bound, we had to bring you with us. And it's like, then, you know, Lone Wolf goes, well, then why'd you strike me down? It's like, well, because you said, and we haven't confirmed you're after our target. So honor dictates we can't strike you. But the boat's burning, so we can escape. You can't. So (laughs) that takes care of our issue with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so at this time they're on the boat, and I forget how it catches on fire. So then they're having this, like, honor discussion while this boat's burning around the yeah, it's the, uh, around the people them. on the boat, they see the opportunity to take down these brothers because they know they can't fight them, but they know that if they just burn the boat they're on, what are they going to do? Oh, yeah, they're getting into the boat, and then they pour the oil on them, and they throw a torch in it, but then they burn up their own boat they're traveling in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, when, you, when you get to these stories, the peasants are not depicted very brightly. And no. or the non warrior cast is not not portrayed as very intelligent. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like with with the peasants, there's two types. There's either the ones that just accept that their fate will be their fate, and if they're gonna die, they're gonna die, and they just they're gonna do the the best they can, do the right thing as much as they can, and then there are the peasants that are terrified of everything and think that they can fight against it, but when they're fighting against it, nobody's there to protect them. So they're they're fighting against forces that are professionals at what they're doing. So, I mean, like in this case, they're trying to fight against three professional killers, basically. And uh, that's just the stupid. It's pretty stupid to do. You're, you're a peasant. You know, it's like, stay away and hope they're not there to kill you. That's pretty much your best bet. If you try to kill them, then, you know what, if they weren't there to kill you, they're going to kill you now because yep. you tried to kill them. Exactly. And I think this is one of the only stories where you see the the fight sequence that's not Lone Wolf or Cub involved in it. Because the three brothers, they kind of get attacked by a, uh, a mob of sword-welding peasants. And you see one's got the katana, one's got the bear claws, and one's got the club, and I think... You know, so you do get a little bit more depiction because then you have the one panel where the guy hits the other, where the the brother whacks the one peasant in the back of the head with the club, and you see his eyeballs pop out and and all its it's all its detail. But it's one of the few fights fights. It's one of the few full fight scenes that you see where it's not got Lone Wolf and Cub in it, but it it kind of shows the same sequences you usually see involved with him. Yeah, one of the things I love about that fight, too, is they get to the end of it, and uh, the one of the brothers chides one of the other brothers for allowing there to be blood spray. Yes. And he's basically oh, like, really, blood spray against these guys? Like, you need to practice. 
<laughs> he had <laughs> not not that he got struck, not that he got injured. There was blood spray as they butchered these uh, these thugs that were hired to kill them. Yes, that that was funny. I remember that now. Yeah, it's like you need to practice more. <laughs> well, any last thoughts on Lone Wolf and Cub? I think we've we've pretty thoroughly talked about this. Um, I don't think there's any other stories that really uh, warrant more in depth discussion. No, it's just um, they start to get a little bit better. Well, I don't think I'm going to say a little bit better. I mean, the, the previous stories were good, and it continues to go on. There's there's an interesting story that comes up and not too soon after this that you can look forward to, where the entire story is based on the exact way or the proper way to decapitate a person. <laughs> Because uh, and I'll just because apparently when you're doing seppuku, so you're on your knees, and the, and you know and this is how the the executioners had to practice. You had to cut, you had to cut the head off in such a way that their head would fall in their lap. And there's an entire story dedicated to to, to that aspect of feudal Japan. That's awesome. And th- those kind of intricacies are what make Lone Wolf and Cub and Usagi Yojimbo and things like that so good is uh yeah it's it's really it it ties in so much of history and uh just deep you know the, the details of of what's happening telling telling the story of the details can be such a compelling story um I mean, we're just so used to stories being focused on the action and the, the details are secondary You've been listening to Episode 9 of the Comics in Black and White podcast. We talked about Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, join us next time when we will be talking about Sean Murphy and Punk Rock Jesus, a book that actually, when I got into comics, when I first really was getting into comics and I started going to my first real LCS, that was the first book suggested to me was Punk Rock Jesus, and I was not interested at the time. I finally read it, uh, thanks to, to Jay, who was with us recently for uh, the Love and Rockets podcast episode that we did. He'll be back with us for Punk Rock Jesus, uh, possibly with another guest. Uh, that'll be our next episode, so read up on that. And just to get a head start, start reading Essex County, because that'll be coming behind it, and that has a little bit more meat to it. Uh, thank you again, Dennis, for joining me on this episode. Uh, we look forward to having, well, we, I, it's just I now, it's no longer a we show. I look forward to having you on uh, on future episodes, including ElfQuest, another meaty one that uh, that if you're into that, you should start reading so you can be ready for it. Um, where can uh, can folks give you some feedback on how they liked this? Oh well, I'm in the Valiant Central uh, Facebook group. Uh, I'm on the Slack channel, and I do have a Twitter account at UTENGR that I'm I usually check about once a month or so. <laughs> I, I I do not know the Twitter. That is that age that gives my age about me and my Twitter usage. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for for joining me on this. Uh, between you and Jay, I think we we are going to have our two uh, Steve Martins of the podcast that are, are regular recurring members with me. So yeah. So well, that's we, that's because we're the old guys before they had color for comics. Yeah, sir. <laughs> I know it's great. Both of you guys are like, oh, you should read this. Here, I mailed it to you. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's somebody to share the obsession with. Yeah, you know, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, and that's why I want to do this podcast is to talk about things that we love that are a little bit offbeat and 
I think between you and Jay, I've found two uh, two kindred spirits in the world of offbeat, interesting, meaty, meaningful comics and poison elves. Ah, <laughs> I'll I'll make a convert of you eventually. <laughs> I don't know. You kind of drove me off with the the guy wearing the banana hammock. Oh, the purple marauder. He doesn't show up that often. He serves a purpose. Every character serves a purpose. All right. Well, until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Who's Paul. You can tweet the podcast on Twitter at, at CBW Podcast. That's what it is. Uh, you can email us uh, at uh, CBW Podcast at Outlook.com. Uh, tweet, uh, tweet Martin at Geekvine and tell him how this is the second best podcast on Nerdy Legion. It really isn't, but, uh, well, at least download wise, but. I like to remind him that uh, that I'm the best. So until next time, read up on some punk rock Jesus, some Sean Murphy. Have a good night. Later.
Um, yeah, and I <laughs> have you watched uh, Iron Fist at all? Yes. So one have, of the one of the criticisms with Iron Fist is that the fighting sucks in it, right? I did. I didn't really think that. I mean, it's it's like I think I was talking to the Jack Sutherland about it, and it was kind of like I mean, it's kung fu, and kung fu is more of defensive, where you you're supposed to get out of the way and let your opponent's momentum carry them or something. You know, it's not striking back, but in traditional martial arts, is you you go in and you go in for that strike. It's kind of almost like MMA. You go in and you do that strike, and you just want to end it. You don't want to be prolong it. And I kind of felt that's what some people's complaints about Iron Fist was. It's like there weren't any long fight sequences. Yeah, that's not even the, the element about it that bothered me or that uh, that I was referring to that I heard about either. Um, so the, the actor that plays Danny Rand in it, he hardly trained. He trained intensely for a couple of weeks. Uh, but then once filming started, filming was just so intense he wasn't able to keep up his training. And when you look at the fight scenes, I think it uh, like you see that because it's kind of like okay, well we have to get from point A to point B with the fights, and it's I think I, I haven't watched the whole series yet, but it gets better as the series goes on. But some of the early ones are just I mean they just look silly. They just absolutely look silly. It's like they're uh, it looks it looks stiff. It doesn't flow. Have you seen Bowfinger? I uh, do not think so. It's uh, Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin. I haven't seen it in forever, so I don't remember exactly, but somebody posted a meme, or I guess a gif, of uh, one of the scenes where Eddie Murphy's character is in, like, a kung fu movie. So he guys are running up to him. He's not hitting them or anything. They're not hitting him, but they're getting their butts kicked by him because they're acting as if he was acting appropriately, right? <laughs> so they're running up to him and then they're acting like whatever he's doing is the right is like appropriate fighting. That's that's kind of how it feels like a little bit in Iron Fist. But my, my point of saying that is that uh, in the show Iron Fist, the Netflix series, they're they're telling the story and the the lack of emphasis on the training for the fighting is apparent. It, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a lack of emphasis on the details of what's going on, um, and you know we're that's kind of what we're used to with, with uh, a lot of movies and comics and stuff like that. You get more focused on the the big bang moments and progressing the story along that you lose sight of the details that really are what make the story great. So reading something like Lone Wolf and Cub, Usagi Yojimbo, watching a movie like Seven Samurai where the the story really is small it's a it's a small story as far as like length of the story but they get so into the details without it being mundane that mm-hmm. it makes it magnificent yes exactly and it's been a while since i've seen seven samurai so now i'm going to have to go watch it again yeah, I watched that one <laughs> Sunday. I was like, you know what, damn it, I'm just going to watch this. It's hard for me to find time to watch stuff because I have a four-year-old, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I have very like I have very little time for just for myself. So one Sunday I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to watch this. It's an old enough movie that the violence isn't going to be anything that would be offensive to a kid. You know, he's not going to know what's going on with the violence. Uh, it's subtitles, so any profanity isn't going to be heard. Um, that movie was three and a half hours long, and I loved it. But I was like, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, it's a long movie. 
<laughs> Hard to fit in with the four-year-old. I'd have to pause it occasionally and go play with him, but uh, it was definitely well worth it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh, you know that in an, and all that talking made me. Did you did you see that in the story where the guy he had the duel with him and he got the and then it was the final duel and it was a slice such that it whistled when the yeah. when he was breathing and he's like, oh, I thought I'd never hear the perfect cut. And then I heard it on my own neck. <laughs> yeah. that, that pretty much epitomizes it. It's just, yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub is just a great story. The, I wish I'd gotten into it a lot sooner. Yeah, I, this, you know, so, some comics, some books, whatever, they're, you read them and you can know that they're good, but they'll be just hard to get through sometimes, or they'll have their high points and their low points. And then some are just, they're so good and so compelling that they're good in the short run, they're good in the long run. They keep you moving through it so quickly. You just, not only do you want to see what happens next, but you're happy living in the moment. Uh, and that's really what I felt like with this book, is it's like, I don't, I'm not just trying to get to the next page to get the next cliffhanger. Um, but I want to, I want to absorb this story, and then as soon as I'm done with it, I just, I want another one. So I'm looking forward to getting more of it, definitely. It's it's one of those ones that you just kind of keep rolling through, and you you can stop and pick it up later, too, because it's not one of the... You know, you read some books that uh, if you take a break from them, you're going to be lost when you come back. I don't think that'd be the case with this one, either, so... No, like I said, it, I read it over the course of uh, 12 years, and... I mean, it just parts of it stick with you once you get the little backstory. I mean, maybe some of the details on how it went down between the Yagyu clan and the Ogami clan, I may have lost, but you know the basic premise. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, in over 12 years, it was very good. It was quite enjoyable to read the first part again. I'm really thinking about reading, rereading the whole thing. Uh, of course, I still got, I got Frank Miller's Ronin here I got to get into. So I'm kind of in my summer room. Yeah, that. I, I read that. I always wanted to read that because it was a major influence on Ninja Turtles. Uh, I uh, I've I read, read the first major influence on Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I read the first issue uh, and I've got the other five here that I've got to get through. God, it's only six issues long. Yeah, it's only six issues. Oh, it felt like so much more than that. Well, I guess that gives you your opinion on that then. <laughs> yeah, it, it it wasn't horrible. Like, I, I was complaining about it to somebody, and they're like, well, why don't you just quit reading it? I'm like, it's not that level of bad, but... It, it's not walk out of the movie bad? It's also, yeah, it's also kind of tedious. It's, it's one of those where you're like, you get through to the parts where you're like, oh, man, I don't know. You're like, well, I know that this is an important movie, so I'm just going to keep watching it, you know? And you get to the end, and you're like... I guess I'm glad I saw that, but, uh, man, you know, that's, that's kind of how it is. So, I, like, I, I would definitely dive into it and get through it, but uh, I let's just say I'm glad that I bought it as inexpensively as possible. <laughs> it was like $6 on a digital comiXology sale. It may do a little bit better, actually, having it physically there with me, though. Uh, yeah, maybe. Well, you see, I'm a collector. And yeah. so I know I, I there was a good deal on eBay and I got it and they're in good shape and I will go into my collection. How much did you buy it for, if you don't mind me asking? I think I bought it for twenty bucks. That's not bad. I mean, it's bucks. something that's a, it's it's a monumental thing. So 
Yeah, yeah they, they originally were in the collection. They're originally at two fifty each. It's from like the early eighties, so so like cover price would have been fifteen bucks about and I got it for twenty with shipping. So Modern cover I, price would be twenty four, so it's a steal. Exactly. Yeah. So Oh then I know what I need to find sometime and send you to get in your queue for comics in black and white. I need to find a tyrant for you. There's not one spoke. It only came, there was only four issues. Uh, Spider Baby was the name of the comic company, and there are no spoken words in the entire none of the issues. <laughs> it was supposed to be the series about the life of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and the first issue is when he hatches. That sounds great. If you get that for me, we will definitely do that. Uh, oh. that when we talked before, have you read Usagi Yojimbo? I have not. The only issue I have read is the very first issue from Fantagraphics, which I think you now have. Yes, I do. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I did. I did read it before I shipped it to you. Uh, so, I think that you should, re- especially doing this Lone Wolf and Cub. I think that you should read Usagi, and we should do an episode on Usagi at some point. Okay, um, I'll look into it. There's a few volumes, huh? Yeah, so depending on how much you, you trust me and really want to dive into it, uh, Martin and I have done an Usagi podcast, and we focused more on the Fantagraphics, uh, the, the first two Omnibuy. Those you can get, the cover price is like 70 bucks, but you can get them for 40 something um, through various ways. So if you do want to get those, let me know. But the Dark Horse volumes, uh, Dark Horse has seven Omnibuy out of it so far, um, and they're like I think twenty five dollar cover price. So if you can't get it for like seventeen bucks and you're not trying, um, so I would just say yeah. unless you're super confident and you want to read through three Omnibuy before we do it, just get the first Dark Horse one and read it. Okay, I, well I'm let only me look on into the second it. one myself, by the way. So you wouldn't be like too I say I. I frequent a bunch of shops and I frequent a bunch of uh, used bookstores and things. So yeah, pick um, some up and let's uh, see what pops up. It. Yeah, we'll. Uh, we only talked about those first two uh, Fantagraphics, so you know we can. If we, as long as we get at least somewhat past that, then we'll be able to talk about yeah. some new stuff. But especially having done uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, I think that one, I think you'll really like it, and two, I think it'll be interesting talking about it with somebody who has that added perspective. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I've been meaning to kind of get into it. I've just had a few other things I've been involved in, if you like, like this Ronin. And, <laughs> well, yeah, I got ElfQuest. I thought I thought that Omnibus would be here already. Well, y'all did got me on Bone, so I ordered the Omnibus on Bone, and I did read that. Actually, I've got it sitting here. I was going to keep it, but I may get rid of it now. I mean, it's just been sitting there now for taking up space. I kind of liked having it in my collection, but... Yeah, it's that's one that I, I bought before quite a while back. I read it. I got rid of it at some point. I mean, this is when we were in California, so to be fair, we moved 3,000 miles across country. Uh, so we got rid of a lot of stuff. Um, and then I finally got it again. The the one thing with Bone, and this is why I'll keep the Omnibus now, and I haven't even finished rereading the whole thing. I've only read uh, the first couple of uh, you know what, what would have been individual trades of it. Just that first trade worth of stuff, there's just so many fantastic things in it. And those are the things that have never left me. And rereading it and realizing that just about everything that I never forgot about Bone happened in the first trade was uh, pretty impressive. 
Yeah, even though I hadn't read it before, I had I I do have a few of the first issues, and I still love that scene when he's sitting on the branch. Oh, those rat creatures won't jump down here. <laughs> stupid, stupid rat creatures. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one the, of the great moments. That is the best. There's a few that are just so great that that's one thing that I may do eventually is get the individual issues and uh, and then ditch the omnibus, but. It's definitely a good read. It's just it's so great to have so many great things out there to read that there's so much content that you can get for so cheap. I mean, what's the cover price on that Bone Omnibus? Like thirty five dollars maybe? Thirty nine ninety five. Okay, I think so, this is a first edition. Yeah, so a forty dollar omnibus, and if you can't get a book for like thirty percent off, then you really need to look around a little bit more because it's not hard to do. So you yeah, should I think I got that Bone Omnibus for under $30. I got it for 15 off eBay. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, and Oh, and I saw the what you saw uh, post about Terry Moore's uh, uh, softcover Omnis on half price until the 18th. So I was uh, thinking about SIP. SIP? I was thinking okay, so we actually figured this out because they charge ridiculous shipping. The plus oh, is really? if you get – yeah. The plus, if you get it from him, is the money is going to Terry Moore. So you, you, there's and, no middleman that's getting part of the money. So that's a plus. And he and, might can talk him into signing it. Yeah, exactly. He actually – I saw in, in the comments somebody asked him on on Twitter, and he said, yeah, just send me a message or send a follow-up email right away. Um, so if you get SIP, it actually comes out in your favor by a little bit, even with the high shipping cost because the, the price on in-stock trades – Compared to it, you still actually save three and a half bucks. The other ones, you would be spending more than you can get them on in-stock trades. Well, I actually have the singles of Echo and Rachel Rising, so Sip's the only stuff of his I haven't read. But my LCS has has the the Omni hardcovers that's been sitting on their display for like over a year or two. So I'm thinking about going in there and seeing if I'll take fifty bucks the for Sip them. The hardcovers. Yep. The two I, volume. This, I would suggest this, getting those because they're hard to find. So if you can get just, a deal out of them, get them. Yeah, they're just sitting there, and I've been wondering, collecting dust. I've been wondering if I offered fifty bucks if they just sell them to me to get them out to move them. Before before you go uh, offer fifty bucks, look on eBay and see what they're going for because I'm pretty sure that they probably are going for a high price. So go in and offer fifty, see what he counters with, and then probably take it. Uh, because those are, I think they, they're out of print, the hardcover ones. So yeah, but they're still sealed and then I won't want to break the seal and I can't read them. Well, whatever. See, the thing with out of print is even if you break the seal and read them, they're still going to be more valuable than what you're going to pay for them. Yeah, true. So Terry Moore fans are, are the kind of fans that would seek out that stuff. So it's the kind of thing that's not going to lose its value because Terry Moore will always have that hardcore fan base. Yeah. And you know what? I just don't understand somebody that doesn't like his art. Yeah. Aaron. Probably doesn't even listen to this. I mean, his art is just awesome. But yeah, I've been actually been trying to keep my eye out for Tyrant to send you because I think it's, well, I would say it's a fun read, but there's nothing to read. (laughs) Some of those but it was a, are great. We, I was just talking about Hawkeye with uh, with somebody, and uh, a couple of friends actually. I loved Mad Fraction's Hawkeye, and they kind of ruined it for me when they they pointed out the weak points of Fraction's writing. Which over time, I've I've kind of realized Fraction he's good, but he's he's not the greatest. What made Hawkeye so great is that Fraction's good, but Aha's art 
was really what, what put it over the top. And there are a couple of issues in Hawkeye that are like that that are almost no words in them. But they're just such beautiful issues because the, the art is done so well and the scripting is done so well in it. Um, so, yeah, if, if you come across, I'll, I'll keep my eye out for Tyrant, too. I mean, I, I don't have many opportunities to come across stuff, but you never know. Um, well, I've been looking at it in my comic shops that I hit, and I have yet to see it in the dollar bins or anything like that. And on eBay, I'll see where they have issues one through three, and then they'll have issue four scarce, and they'll have, like, 20 bucks for it. So. <laughs> I mean, I sent you though those those six the five poison elves I sent you. I think I, I think I got those for like eleven bucks. So it was like way less than cover when nice. I found them. But uh, oh, that reminds me, I gotta get those. Um, I do have some stuff to mail. I do have those poison elves trades and I think those Turoks I promised you like a couple of weeks ago and some other stuff that I gotta get shipped out. You could uh, you could send the poison elf stuff. Just go ahead and send it on to Sparkman. Oh, too late! It's already boxed up. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it. Like I am interested in checking it out. I don't think I'll like literally read every bit of it, but I'll you know I'll, I'll read some of it. I'll leave through. I, I kind of want to get a sense of what happens, but then I'll send them on to Sparkman afterwards. Uh, yeah, but if nothing, what you what you'll enjoy is reading the. Um, so he's got different starting notes for the volumes, and then he also has he also has somebody do a forward. So he has Brian Michael Bendis does a forward where they talk about their fake feud. Um, they talk about the whoever the author of uh, ElfQuest is. Apparently, they were doing they were doing dueling ads in previews in Diamond at one time, where they were each calling out each other's works. Like I don't make any cute elves. And, and stuff like so they're taking out half page ads against each other and, and one of those guys wrote the forward and there was a couple of other people his mom wrote a forward for him yeah see that's the stuff I, I'll, I'll read all of that stuff because that stuff really interests me the the issues I'll, I'll read through them kind of quickly scanning them but uh, who knows maybe well, I'll get hooked in too well I mean that's fair And but the thing is like the first volume he did not like his art for the first two issues so the first two issues are not reprinted in the trade paperback. He writes them out, so it's almost uh, he he does a novella of the first two issues, and then you start with the artwork in the with like issues three, four, and on going. So is that the first two issues of uh, like the Mule Hide? Yeah, the first. Yeah. What we went over was the first six, five issues of Sirius. Before yeah. that, he had he self-published under his Mulehide graphics himself. 20, that's the first five trade paperbacks of those first 20 issues. I had never read those before until like last week. Hmm. Which, And then again, it's like the first two issues, he didn't even do the artwork. He didn't reprint that because he didn't like his art style. He wanted to redraw it, so I still have to go find it. I found on eBay the first 20, those first 20 issues where there was a set for 275 and it, nobody bought it. Now there's another set on there for five hundred dollars. So that's what the the first twenty issues are going for. So we'll see if I eventually get it. Yeah, but, comic collecting is so crazy because you'll stuff like that because it's so scarce uh, will be listed for such a high price. But it's also the kind of thing that because how many people are are seeking that out? I mean, there's enough well, people to fetch the price, but there's also little enough that. You there's the chance, long shot chance, but it happens where you'll stumble across it in like a flea market for 
a bucking issue or something like that. Well, I know, but you see, that's why I can't figure out some of this. Like some, well, you know, I don't want to pick on Valiant, but some of their variants and such, you know, they're one in tens, one in twenties, one in fifties. You know, I can understand the scarcity, but there's, they're scarce, but there's also a limited number of people that are seeking it out. Did that so I've said when uh, when we had them on for a hundredth episode, he said one in tens and one in twenties. There, there is nothing about them that really makes them valuable. Like they, they're not the speculators. They're not. Those aren't speculator books. They're, there's no, too they're many not. of them. Yeah. So it's it's when you get higher than that the speculation starts. Well, um, it's even the one in fifties. I'm. If you don't. How many people are buying the Marvel and the DC books compared to the Valiant? You can just Valiant books. You can just see that on the sales. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have that many people looking for it, how does it get the price up? And then I asked that question, and you know that Bloodshot Platinum number zero that's on eBay sold for seventeen thousand seventeen hundred dollars today. Yeah, see, and the, oh God, the, so the Bloodshot zeros from VH1, the the, the Platinum the variants. Air. The um, error one. The error one. There's only yeah. like they're like five in existence or something like See, that. See, I, I think that's funny. That's like uh, I I don't know. Like I I think that that's the kind of thing that you can call that a scarce variant, or you can call that a piece of trash. But enough people think it's valuable that it makes it valuable. Well, it's only valuable because it's different, and the difference isn't intentional. Yeah, and, and the difference is, is it's a flaw, and there could be other flaws that nobody would give a crap about in in books. You know, it's just it's one that enough people are like, this is the only one. Well, it's so like it's I super got valuable. Well, you know that VH1. I got what the Magnus Fifty, where it's got there's error ones where they miss misnumbered the page, where the pages are in the wrong order. Mm-hmm. You know, I got some of that. That's an error. You know, it's still a you know still a dollar book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some aren't going to be worth. It. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of, that that bloodshot. The the one. There's only one in existence. There's only well, one that you know of that was screwed up slightly differently than the other screwed up one. So you think it's more valuable, but you know whatever. I mean, it, what's crazy is, is it has that value, and it's not like that's a a randomly popped up value that's gone away. It's kept that value. So it like legitimately has that value to collectors now. Well, I, well, I'm not doubting the value and somebody will pay, you know, something's worth what somebody will pay for it. I just, and maybe, you know, comic book collecting value, maybe they can talk about it. It's just what, what gives it, what gives a, a scarce comic its value? It's scarcity. It's desirability. Both. I was actually I mean, talking I mean, to it, I think Dewan specifically about that book, and I said you guys need to talk about this because I'm calling shenanigans on that one. Um, but yeah, I was I was talking about it to Martin too that it is like not only is it scarcity, but it's the desire of people to have it. You know, certain things become a, a, a grail to enough people that suddenly it's it it has a value to it. Um, I, I can relate it more for myself to when I collected sports cards for a while. Uh, when I first started collecting, what kind of got me hooked was I got a one-of-one one card. So it's the only one in existence. And it just it was it was super cool. It was, a, it was a printing plate from the card that they made for this set. And it was autographed, and it was a rookie card. 
the way they do the autograph is they actually have them uh, autograph like a clear label that they put on the card. Um, so it was actually a metal printing plate. So it was just like super cool. I mean, when I collected cards as a kid, the coolest things that existed were die cut cards that are that those are meaningless now, you know. Um, mm-hmm. The the cards worthless because the the player busted. The the player never made anything of himself. So it's it's the only one in existence of that, only one, of that specific thing. But it doesn't matter because, you know what? There there are three other uh, printing plates from that specific card, but they do that for other card sets too, and the player doesn't matter. Whereas you can get a card for uh, the the most valuable card I ever got in a pack that I sold. I sold for four hundred bucks, and that was an Andrew Luck autographed rookie card. And uh, it wasn't the, the scarcest card, but that was worth 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 four hundred dollars. This other one that I had that was the only one in existence, I probably sold for like ten or fifteen bucks. Yeah. So the demand is such a big part of it. People have to want it. And so going back to what you were saying about Valiant books, uh, an Archer or sorry, A and A, the the Rafer Roberts series, they did one in fifties for that. Those aren't really worth anything. The Britannia one in fifties are worth a lot, especially number two for some reason. Yeah, but from a lot of the Valiant fans didn't care for Britannia, so where's the desirability? Enough people did care about it. I think it's also a title that can appeal to outside of just Valiant fans, uh, mm-hmm. so people who are just collectors. You know, like Britannia doesn't have to be. You don't have to be steeped in Valiant to be have some kind of appeal for Britannia. Um, the art also, I think, I think this is where there's a big difference uh, with Britannia, is the art isn't black and white versions of the A cover. It's uh, Dave Johnson art, so he's a very good cover artist. So the art is really, really good. But then with yeah. Savage, it's black and white variants of the cover art. But I think where that works out better is it's uh, like Louis LaRosa art. And Louis mm-hmm. LaRosa art looks good as a black and white variant. Whereas with A&A, the cover art was uh, David LaFuente. Uh, it was, is that his name? Is it, did I get that right? I think it's David LaFuente. Did yeah, I, that think that, I think that's how you feel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, his art, it looks like a coloring book if it's black and white. You know, it's, it's not spectacular in black and white. So I, there's different factors that play into it. But I think with Valiant, the uh, the mini series that have one in fifties, those one in fifties do better than uh, one in fifties for the the maxi series that they do. <laughs> yeah, I'm just no. I mean, I'm a, I'm a full collector. I I get the scare stuff that I like and things. It's just. You know, with the speculating and stuff that I hear about and everything, it's just like, how does one decide what is scarce and desirable? Yeah, I think that's where the difference between speculating and being a speculator and being a collector are two very different things. Being a speculator, you are a collector to an extent, but you're a collector who is looking at the value, and that's kind of what drives your uh, collecting passion. Mm-hmm. Um it's so like speculators do a lot of, uh, you know, from what I've seen, it's been interesting seeing this, do a lot of, uh, you know, getting CGC copies, understanding when it's worth pressing a book, 
uh, and then getting it CGC'd. Uh, there was somebody actually that made a post on the Valiant Fan uh, Valiant Fans Facebook page about this that went into pretty thorough detail about stuff. I found it very interesting. Um, so that's, that's speculators. You know, they're the ones that uh, that made oh, what the hell was it? like Bloodshot number six go from being a worthless comic book to one that had some value to it uh, <laughs> because it's the first Colin King. Um, yeah. Whereas collectors, like you're a collector, I'm a collector. When we collect something, uh, the the monetary value, I think it adds some excitement to it for us. But monetary value doesn't supersede the value that it has to us. Well, the, the monetary value only matters if you're going to flip it. Exactly. Like when I collected sports cards, because I, I cleared out my sports card collection when I realized that that was too expensive of a hobby and I couldn't do that, and comics. I only kept one set of cards uh, that, that was a lot of work to put together, um, but everything else I just I sold I got rid of. Uh, I lost money on most of it, made money on a little bit of it, um, but it didn't matter at that point. But when I had the cards, um, like say, for example, I'm a 49ers fan, and one of uh, my prized cards was I had a Colin Kaepernick autographed rookie card. Now, I bought it for 20 bucks before he started starting at all. You know, he was a, he was a nobody. Uh, so just running the mill card didn't mean anything. When he was the most successful, it went up to being worth like probably 250 bucks. And that was exciting. Like, it was exciting to be like, oh, man, I have this card. It's worth $250. But I didn't love the card because it was worth $250. I loved the card because it was my Colin Kaepernick rookie card. And it just added some excitement to it that it had grown in value like that. I ended up selling it for around $100 because by then the 49ers were starting to fall apart. He was starting to struggle, so there wasn't all that excitement behind it. Um, and I didn't care. I mean, you could say I lost out on 150 bucks, but I didn't buy it to get the most I could out of it. I bought it because I'm a 49ers fan, and I was collecting. So I, I think that's kind of the difference between collectors and speculators, and that's where, you know, so, the that one Divinity 1 in 40, I forget for what issue, I, th I, I think it's number one, the Louis Larosa yeah. one. Um, mm -hmm. I think it is. I didn't like it. I thought it was a, an ugly cover. I just there's something about the art, and I love Louis Soros's art, but it looked funny to me. Um, just the I don't know. I did not like that cover. I had the chance to get it, but I didn't like it, so I didn't get it. And then it blows up in value like crazy. And so you know, part of part of me kind of wants to be like, oh man, I could have had that, and I could have made money off of it. But I know that when it comes down to it, I never would have bought it because I didn't want it. That's the big difference. Yeah. yeah, I can see that, and that's kind of some of the thoughts I've had on it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to understand why certain, and this is, you know, it goes to value why certain valiant one in fifties basically do better than other one in fifties, and it, and, it, and it's not really with the number printed. And I think this all got me thinking about it when they did that one in five hundred for XO one. Yeah. When you right. when you were trying to think of it when we're when you're sitting there trying to price it. Yeah, I think it's gone. It's come down from what eight hundred dollars to about five hundred dollars now. Yeah, and I know people that have gotten it for a lot less. I know people that have worked out deals to essentially, uh, with the complexity of the deals, get it for free because they worked out a deal where they bought this other stuff, and or maybe they sold this other stuff. They did a little bit of this and that. Um, 
So, you know, I, I've heard a variety of deals. Uh, I think the people that got good deals, like the consensus really good deal was probably around $200. And it probably involved like buying the other covers uh, or it was a shop that's able to sell a lot. They're not trying to gouge the person that wants that. Like that's where the shop is buying loyalty. You sell a one in 500 book for $200, you're buying loyalty with that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, they're, they're making sure that they're, uh, that, you know, the dollars they get at the end of the day are working out for them. Um, but yeah, that, that's a book where making a one in 500 book is, is manufacturing the scarcity. <coughs> and that, that's the kind of thing I wouldn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. Like I would have to love something to want to get into that mess. And you know what? I don't love EXO enough to even mess with that. Um, I love reading EXO, but I don't have that collecting passion for EXO. Um, but a book like, uh, well, the, the Britannia number two, one in 50. I don't know why number two is worth so much more than the other ones, but it is. Um, I know that there was something funny with that. It didn't come out the week it was supposed to, and nobody could find it. Um, I had a lot of people asking me about that because at that time I was getting my hands on quite a few variants for people. Um, but for some reason that book is worth, uh, I want to say a couple hundred bucks on its own, mm -hmm. something like that. And it's, that's, that's not, uh, that's not manufactured scarcity. That's because there's actual scarcity to the book. There's the demand because the, it's, you know, a beautiful cover a known artist, uh, Britannia has that kind of buzz around it. So yeah, there really is a different, like Valiant's interesting when it comes to variants. Um, that, that's obviously like the variant kind of market that I know the best myself um, from playing in it a little bit myself and then having the opportunity to, uh, to get my hands on some to sell other people and just kind of seeing how they really do. Uh, yeah, I mean, so many of the variants, they're just... You know, I mean, I get the I get the variants I like. Yeah. If I can, if I see them and I really like the cover, then I get it. Yeah. When I started building a, a Valiant collection again, I was able to get my hands on some of the variants that I liked that I had let go before when I sold my whole collection. Uh, you know, I was working on towards buying the house, and I was able to get some of them for a dollar. At uh, Newberry Comics, they were clearing out all their old stuff, and some of the variants that I would have dropped, you know, more like, I don't know, 10 bucks on. I would never spend a fortune on variants unless, like, I really, really loved them. But I was able to get a bunch of them for a buck. You just can't, you can't beat that. But, I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, the difference between I need to have this because I'm compulsively collecting it, so I'll pay whatever it's going for right now, and the what's the real value of this? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> I'm so pissed off. I realized that uh, I think I actually turned this is stupid Skype recorder. I think I actually had turned it off. It normally kicks on automatically. And that was the one time I didn't check to make sure that it kicked on. Was that out doing that podcast? <sighs> cool. Well, thanks again for joining me. And yeah, any, anything you want to do. Let me know, and if it's something I can get my hands on, or if you help me get my hands on it, or whatever, um, I'm open to anything for this. So I'm excited right. about that tyrant. Yeah, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, but even other stuff. Let me know, and I'll, I'll start. Uh, I, I think you should check out Usagi. Let me know when you do, and I think that you'll get hooked, and uh, we'll do a second Usagi episode. 
Okay, I'll keep my eye out, see what I can find. You'll find it. You'll find it. <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> well, if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. All right, I'll catch you later. All right, night. Good night.